Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Have you ever heard the song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Excuse me for not singing it to you, but it's a classic hymn, and the title, as you might guess, is This World is Not My Home. However, the Bible frequently portrays the final destination of the righteous as occurring on earth. In this message, we'll take our cue from Daniel's vision in chapter 7 to see what God's plan is for his people. Ultimately, he wants a restored world without suffering and sin so that he can enjoy a relationship with his people forever. This world is your home. You were born here, you currently live here, and your hope is to remain here. Thus, ironically, the Christian idea that heaven is our home is anti-biblical. Here now is episode 110, Heaven is Not My Home. The Barna Group is an organization that does surveys related to Christianity, and they recently did a survey in America on Bible-mindedness, and they asked people two questions. They said, when they called, it took seven years to accomplish this survey, and they called thousands of people, and they asked them the questions, have you read the Bible in the last seven days? And the second question was, do you strongly agree with the accuracy of the scriptures? Do you strongly agree that the Bible is accurate? And so those, those two questions, they asked uh, over 40,000 people, and they came out with the, the following data in 96 uh, different cities around America and rated them by Bible-mindedness. Kind of an interesting thing to do, I guess. The first one was in uh, Tennessee. The second one was in uh, a city in Louisiana. And, but I, what I want to call your attention to is, is really the, the last five least Bible-minded cities, um, because as you'll see, uh, number 91 was Boston, Massachusetts, then we had Hartford, then Portland, then Burlington, Vermont, had 16% Bible-mindedness, and then number 95 out of 96 was Albany, Schenectady, and Troy, New York, and that rates us as 90% not Bible-minded. <laughs> now, first place got about 52%. So there are some places in America where more than one out of every two people you run into is, is Bible-minded. They, they read the book, they believe in it, and it seriously affects their life. And although, and interesting, the other place, the, the last place, which we're very thankful we're not in last place, is Providence, <laughs> Rhode Island. So we'll just pray for those, those heathens over there. <laughs> but uh, uh, in the meantime, um, you know, the Bible is the most famous book of all time. You know, everybody knows of the Bible, and it's the bestseller of all time. But in our place and in our time, it's not significantly influencing most people in this area. And I, I think that's significant to know. It's important to know where, where our culture, where our society stands, so that we have a frame of reference when we talk to people and share things. And so, generally, what I've understood is that when people are not Bible-minded, their default position is whatever the mainstream culture beliefs. They just go along with the flow. And on the subject of, you know, life after death or, or the end times or 
salvation, generally what I come across in the culture is this heaven and hell idea that people either go to heaven or they go to hell um, when they die. And so what I wanted to share with you on was, was a bit about the kingdom of God from Daniel chapter 7 because even if many of us already know this, this might help you in sharing it with others. And some of us maybe have never heard this before. I remember the first time somebody challenged me to think about the subject of heaven and whether or not uh, people are going there or if it's just some sort of mythology that was invented over time. And I was very disturbed and very convinced that that speaker was totally wrong. Um, and that, that was the beginning of, of my journey to, to start thinking about it. And I was determined to find that verse in the Bible that said I was going to heaven. Because everybody believes it, so it must be right, right? But here I am doing a teaching called Heaven is Not My Home. So you'll have to see what you think about it. Daniel 7 is this incredible sci-fi vision. I mean, it's really out there. And so if that's, if that's your genre, if that's what you're into, you're going to love it. And if not, well, it'll be interesting. So... It starts out in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So this is a dream, and we realize that in dreams, things can happen that don't happen in real life, right? Like, you can fly in a dream in real life if you jumped off a roof. You're probably not going to fly, right? So... Uh, Daniel is seeing some pretty weird stuff. And it says at the end of this uh, dream, in verse what is this, 15, he says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. So what he saw in this dream was pretty distressing, pretty weird. Even, even for him, it was this, the dream that he had, he was pretty disturbed by it. So let's see what he, what he saw. Verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision at night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea. And so... He's at the seashore, and there's a lot of wind, and there are churning waves, and the sea is experiencing some sort of storm, right? And it's not, you don't get the impression that this is a sweet, gentle, pink uh, bunny dream. You know what I mean? This is, this is a dream where there aren't any pink bunnies. I mean, there are just waves crashing against each other. And then in verse 3, four great beasts come out of the sea, different from one another. And the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lift up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a human mind was also given to it. Now that's totally weird, right? I mean, you've got a lion with wings on it and then the wings are pulled off it and then it stands up. It's just amazing stuff here. We'll get to the interpretation in a minute, but let's get through the four beasts. The, the next one in verse 5 and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So now we have a four-headed leopard with four wings. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. 
It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this is just somebody's total guess at what this terrifying beast looked like. The internet is just, just not convinced on, on what exactly the beast is, but um, if you're someone to, to put all your trust in, in, in the internet, uh, the, going, the going theory is uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex-like animal. How do they know that? I don't know. It's the internet. So uh, anyhow, this is, uh, this is one person's impression of what the terrifying beast looks like. It's pretty scary looking to me. And uh, then in verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns on the top of his head, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out of the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So there, there we have a little horn with the eyes and a mouth uttering. It's a dream, right? This stuff happens in dreams. You get these weird creatures and, and it's all combined together and this one has a horn with a face on it and it's talking you know but it's a dream that can happen and then verse 9 comes this really awesome scene where you get the throne of God I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat and his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels where a burning fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Brad, maybe you could do it, thanks. Uh, so this is, this is another impression of what that might have looked like. But the Ancient of Days is a way of talking about God. So he sees these four weird beasts come out of the ocean, and then he switches his gaze to... Look at the Ancient of Days who is seated and he's surrounded with thousands and it says myriads or ten thousands. Just thousands and ten thousands of these other beings that are attending him and his throne is just saturated with fire. It's really cool, huh? I wish I had dreams like this. And you, know, you see how God's pictured in this dream. And, and what's interesting about this dream too is that it's a dream that's given to Daniel as opposed to just a dream that he might have on his own. So when you have a dream, when I have a dream, I have a dream, uh, we, uh, basically our minds combine things that we already know about and that we you know, have experienced or thought about, and it tries to put it all together. This is, this is sort of an external input working with Daniel. So God's actually guiding this, this, this process to some degree, and he pictures himself as this incredible judge. And the reason why I know he's a judge is because it says that he's sitting on a throne and it says the court sat and the books were opened. And the first thing that the, the, that the Ancient of Days does is he passes judgment on that little horn and that last terrifying beast. We'll get to the interpretation of what all this means in just a second. But for now, let's keep reading. Verse 11, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And then verse 13 and 14 is, is really where I want to focus for a minute because it talks about the Son of Man. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
So the, the beasts before this were a lion and a bear and a leopard and a weird thing that Daniel had no idea what it was. And they came out of the sea. And then you have this Ancient of Days who, who represents God, right? And co- uh, coming to God is this human. It's not an animal. It's a human. Son of Man is another way to say a human being throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It doesn't become a title until later where it's like the Son of Man. Right now, it's just, it's just a generic term for a human being. And I can show you, to that, show you that in, verse, uh, in chapter 8, verse 17. If you could just flip there for a second, we'll flip right back. But there are um, several uses of this, but one of them's right here. So he came near to me, or he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. So this is Daniel being called Son of Man. The book of Ezekiel is loaded with times where God calls Ezekiel Son of Man. Basically, it's like saying human. So this is like an angel talking to a human. So the angel's like, human, listen up. Right? And so Son of, son of Man means just a, a human being. And that's significant, as we'll see in a moment, because of what these beasts represent that the, this last one is actually a human, not some gnarly, freakish beast. Right? And he comes to the Ancient of Days, and he doesn't come out of the sea. He comes through the clouds to the Ancient of Days. In verse 4, we get three sets of threes. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's the first set of three. Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. It's saying the same thing three times. What does this last Son of Man kingdom receive? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That's three again. People, or peoples, nations, and men of every language. Look, if you've got all the peoples, you've got all the men. If you've got all the men, you've got every different language that there is, right? It's saying this, it's emphasizing this point that, first of all, he's got serious dominion. And second of all, that there is no one that's not under that dominion doesn't matter what language you speak or what people group you're from, you're under that dominion. And then the third thing is the time. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the first thing he said was his dominion is everlasting. Second thing is it won't pass away. Third thing is it won't be destroyed. That's saying the same thing three times again. It's everlasting. It will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. That's emphasizing as much as, as, as possible the fact that this kingdom does not have an end point. Can we agree on that? Okay. So there is this idea of a dominion that's universal that never ends. I mean, that, that's huge when it comes to understanding the Bible. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Understandably so. You saw some pretty strange stuff here. And then in verse 16, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he's, he's in the dream still, and he's asking one of these bystanders, like, what is this? What am I seeing? Can you explain this to me? And we get this interpretation. Verse 17, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise out of the earth. Ah, we're talking about people. That helps. 
right? We're, we're, talk, we're not talking about like some sort of like massive combat between circus animals. I mean, we're talking about human kings that will arise out of the earth. And then verse 18, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. I love that because it's like the, the interpreter, whoever this is in the, in the vision here, is, is itching to get to the end of the dream and, and to skip over all the other stuff in, the, in, in, in between it. So he says, hey, Daniel says, hey, what's going on? He's like, well, you know, those four beasts are kings that are going to rise out of the earth, but the saints are going to possess the kingdom forever. Right? He just like skips over all the weird stuff and he's like, let's just go right for the, the, the final way it ends up. And, you know, and it's interesting, it says, because we had the Son of Man, but now in verse 18 we have the saints. Now the saints are not dead, famous people. The saints are living and dead people who are following God, people who are the, the uh, servants of God. And so the saints, anytime you read the saints in Scripture, you want to think, that's, that's us, that's the people of God, the, the ones who are endeavoring to follow Christ. Those are the saints. And a saint is one that's set apart one that's set apart from everyone else because what we do is we uh, trust in God and uh, do what He says. And so the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. So whenever I see that, I get excited because I think that's talking about us. You know what I mean? Like, as long as we're talking about the Son of Man, I'm thinking like, yeah, that's probably Jesus. You know, Jesus is awesome. But like, I don't know. When I get, when I get mentioned, I get excited, you know? And so, you know, he starts talking about the people, the, the people of God, the saints, will possess the kingdom forever. Notice it says it twice again, forever for all ages to come, right? If it's forever, it's for all ages to come. So it doesn't say a thousand years here. Now, sometimes when I share this with people, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. That's a millennial kingdom. And they just kind of do this, why do they do this hand-waving motion at the same time? Like, yeah, it's insignificant, who cares, it's just a little detail. It doesn't say a thousand years. It says forever for all ages to come. You know, and then we got the, the triple statement in verse 14, right? It's everlasting. It won't pass away. It won't be destroyed. It's not, the kingdom isn't just for a thousand years. Phase one is a thousand years. But the kingdom lasts forever. Uh, verse 19, then I desire to know the exact... So Daniel's not done. He's not going to let the interpreter off the hook with, yeah, there are kings, and, but you guys are going to be all right. You know, he's like, well, wait a second. What's up with that little horn, right? Aren't you dying to know? But this ain't, okay, verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with his teeth of iron and his claws of bronze, which it devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Verse 20. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth and uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said. Okay, so we're going to get the interpretation on that. It's a, it's a long question, right? A desire to know, bah, 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 and he goes on to this, this great explanation. I just wanted to mention one thing. I, I, I'm not able to cover all of Daniel chapter 7 with you this morning. You know, I'm just kind of giving a, a run-through, and my emphasis is really focusing on what it says about the people of God, 
in the end, not so much on these animal kingdoms and what they represent and which kings it could possibly be and what the different theories there are on that, which is all very fascinating and it's, it's worth your time to look into. But my focus here is on the saints and it says in verse 21 that this little horn is making war with the saints and overpowering them. And if, 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 if the, uh, and we, we know that this represents a king, if there's a king who's making war with the, with the people of God and, and overpowering them, that's, that sounds to me a lot like what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And what he says is there's going to be a time of great suffering before the final kingdom arrives. And so this is already here in Daniel chapter 7. But let's get the answer to the question. Verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. So the fourth kingdom is a global empire, a regime that gobbles up other smaller kingdoms and crushes them. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away and annihilated and destroyed forever. There's three again. You see it? His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. That's a very emphatic way of saying this last kingdom that is going to take over the world and persecute the people of God is going to be completely obliterated. And then the good verse, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness. Three again, right? Sovereignty, dominion, greatness. Of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey Him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. He's like, I didn't tell anybody. I mean, would you tell anybody? I'd be like, I've got to think about this. <laughs> so he wrote it all down, but he didn't, he didn't go off and be like, you wouldn't believe what I dreamed about last night. <laughs> he just kind of kept it to himself, um, which is understandable. Um, but verse 27 is so significant for us as uh, those who are endeavoring to be saints here is that it says, we are going to have the dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven given to the people of God, right? The people of the saints, the highest one. So, for me, this is, this is very significant because it gives me an understanding of what God's intention is for the world. If we have an evacuationist theology, in other words, we believe that we're going to be taken off planet, off world, somewhere into outer space or, or wherever, then we're going to have one mentality of how we live today, and it's going to be a certain way. And if we, if we look at this world as differently and say, well, this, this, this is my home, and ultimately this is where all the action happens. It's funny, because I, I was thinking about scriptures in the, in the uh, Bible to look at on this, and the Bible doesn't really make a big point about not going to heaven, because it just never talks about it. You know, and it just assumes that you are on earth, and so when it talks about stuff, it just assumes that you would realize that all the stuff that it talks about is already on earth. Like when, it's, when it tells us the uh, story of 
David and Goliath, for example, it doesn't, it doesn't it's like go out of its way to specify, oh, by the way, this was on planet Earth that this happened. Right? I mean, I was thinking about like, what, what, is, what makes something your home? You know, you, well, you say well, it might be where you were born. Where you're born is, is your home. You say, well, that, I'm in my hometown or something like that. Or maybe it's where you grew up. Sometimes we're born in one place and we grow up, so, so I was born in Ohio, but I grew up in New York. You know, so what am I, a New Yorker or, or I don't even know how to say an Ohio person. A Buckeye, thank you. There we go. And it's like, well, is it that or is it where I live right now? Is that my home? You know what I mean? But regardless of which one you take, were you born in heaven? Did you grow up in heaven? Do you currently live in heaven? So it, and even if you were going to heaven in the end, it still wouldn't be your home, right? So um, the earth is our home. And the earth is, is, is a place that has awesome design and a lot of beauty and a lot of problems. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's got both. I mean, we've got sunsets and genocides, you know? And it's, and it's a complicated place. And, and we know from Scripture that originally it was made paradise, and then people rebelled. And they decided they wanted to do it their own way, and that there are consequences to that. But the, the great thing about God is that He's powerful enough and brilliant enough and has enough time and energy that He is actually going to fix this world rather than throw it out and bring everyone into heaven. And so, all the kingdoms under heaven, those are actually the problem. Like, one of the biggest problems with the world are all the countries in the world. You know, because they always want to fight with each other or oppress the, the people that live under their regime, right? I mean, maybe not all the problems in the world, but a lot of them are based on rulership. I, I heard not too long ago that there's actually enough food to, to feed everyone in the world. It's just getting it to the people that need it is so difficult in certain countries where the, the government's corrupt. You know? um, my son has a uh, Star Wars lightsaber. It's, a, uh, it's like a flashlight attached to this like, clear plastic retractable thing. And so you can like, go like that and it comes all the way out. And it's like a green color or whatever. And uh, I don't think... I don't know if we, they make them anymore or, or what, but um, it broke. It broke. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty simple device. It's just, it's just got a handle and then a button. And when you hold the button on uh, down, the light is on. And when you let go of the button, the light's off. That's it. Now, once upon a time, I studied computer hardware design. And so I fancy myself somewhat of you know, a capable person when it comes to microelectronics. And I know that a button, battery, and light is all that's behind the plastic handle. And that I could probably fix this thing. And so I, I decide to take it apart, and I take the end of it off, and I get the little screwdriver, you know, you use for your glasses, and I unscrew that, the screws there, and I try not to lose any, and then the baby eats one, but we'll not... <laughs> He's all right. And then, uh, you know, we take it apart, and, I, and I'm, I'm staring at it. I'm staring at it. I'm like, I can fix this thing. I'm like, sure, I can fix this thing. And I can't, I can't figure out what's wrong with it. I'm just staring at it, and it's like, well, the wires are there, the little button, the light, you know, and I start testing stuff. And then I, I discover the problem. The red wire is detached from the battery holder, the red wire. You're not doing anything without the red wire. So... I, uh, I stripped the wire, and I got out my soldering iron, and I soldered it back into place, and I pushed that button, and that thing worked. 
And I was, it was just like a thrill. Just like went through my, my heart. And I'm like, son, I fixed your lightsaber. And he's like, yeah. And so we, uh, we put it back together and he starts lightsabering his brother and, uh, who has the blue one. And uh, they're having a ball, and then, you know, the next day he comes up to me and he says, Dad, it's broken again. <laughs> but here's the thing, like, if I, if I, if I didn't um, have a background in electronics and, and sort of, like, have a lot of comfortableness with stripping wires and soldering them, it's, like, no big deal. It, I, I would never have done that. Instead, you know what I would have done? I would have gone to either the local store or just said to the kid, you know, hey, stuff breaks. Or I would have gone to the store or gone online or something and tried to find another one, right? But it, since I knew how to fix it and I had the time to fix it and I had the tools to fix it, I fixed it. Of course, it broke again, but I did fix it. Um, and so if, if, if we have something that, that breaks that we don't fix, usually it's because we just don't, we don't have, we don't know how to, how to fix it, or like, or like the piano here, right? Say the piano gets out of tune, you know, that, that's a problem, right? So we would want to hire some sort of specialist to come in and fix that, who has that specialist knowledge. Now, the world is, in, is, is broken, right? And God is not too dumb or too weak to be able to fix it, and He is going to fix it. He is capable enough to take all of the complications of 7 billion free agents doing their own thing at the same time and work that out to a point where he's going to send his son and he's going to fix the world and make everything wrong with it right. That's how powerful God is. That's his expert knowledge. Uh, and and what, what he's doing to us now is he's fixing us in anticipation of that great day when he fixes everything. And so we're to be witnesses of it. Um, I've got a scripture here, Acts, or, uh, Isaiah 45, verse 18, and it, it reads, if you can see it, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place. But, and then the part I wanted to emphasize is missing. <laughs> it's supposed to be on a white background, Brad. Uh, but He formed it to be inhabited, is what it's supposed to say in the non-emphasized part. Um, I am the Lord and there is none else. The, the, what Isaiah 45, 18 teaches us is that, <laughs> thank you, is that God's purpose in making the world was so that it would be inhabited with people. This world was His idea. He created it. He came up with the idea of putting seeds in the ground and then they grow with sunlight and water you know, I mean, all, all these different things, these are God's ideas. You know, they're not just sort of like cobbled together with duct tape. I mean, they're like knit together with DNA, right? It's just crazy, the, the complexity of it. But God's purpose for the earth was that it would have people on it. That's why he made it. He formed it to be inhabited. And so if the world ends up with nobody on it, God loses. And so God's intention is to, to have people on it, but people that don't kill each other. You know what I mean? People that work together and people that are, are fighting for justice and peace and righteousness and who want God and who want to have a relationship with God. Can we go to the next one, Brett? There's a scripture here in Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 20 to 21 that says, And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. 
about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. So if you look at the prophets, like Daniel is one of the prophets that speaks about this restoration. Isaiah speaks about the restoration. Jeremiah, these other prophets speak about this time of restoration when Jesus comes back, and it's like restoring an old car back to its original glory. Right? You have the Bible that begins on what planet? Earth. Earth. And some bad stuff happens, right? And then God starts working with people. He calls Abraham out of the land of Ur. And he works with Abraham's family. And then he eventually ends up with a whole nation, the nation of Israel. And he works with them. And there's this long, weaving, winding narrative that tells us how God's been working with people throughout time. And in the end, we end up in the book of Revelation at the very end of it, right back where we started in Genesis 1, where we once again are in the paradise of God. There's the tree of life. People are with God, and God's dwelling here on earth with His people. And it's all restored back to its former glory. Let's take a look at some other scriptures on this subject. Let's go to Psalm 2. So I, one of the things that I ask myself about is, well, if, if the Bible is speaking about the kingdom of God coming to the earth rather than people leaving the earth for another place, why does everybody believe in going to heaven when they die? Well, like, where does that idea come from? And <clears throat> what I've come to see is that it, it's a fairly common idea among just about all ancient religions. That even all, if you go all the way back to like the Egyptians, right? They used to put these... Uh, treasures and stuff in the, in the tomb with the kings when they died so they could use them in the afterlife, right? And they, they, could, they could go on living after they died. Or you look at um, some of these other ancient religions and they basically all believe that you just continue living in another world after death. The underworld or the, you know, the, uh, the, the Greek philosophers and the Gnostics, Gnostic Christians, they believe that you escape to a higher world Right? And some people thought you'd go to a lower world, but not this world. <laughs> and so, um, I don't know, I found it to be very puzzling. And so I started reading what Christians were saying about this and to understand how the, how the church got off track on this subject. And their reasoning was, basically, the idea of living on earth forever conflicted with the way sophisticated thinkers thought about the the ultimate goal in the end. Um, because there was a, a general per, a perception that change is bad. I don't know if you believe that. I don't believe that. Do you believe that all change is bad by definition? I don't think people believe that anymore. Uh, but in the ancient world, that's what they believed, is that change was bad, especially in the Roman Empire, sophisticated thinkers. And, and they're like, you know what? That's what's wrong with the world, change. I'm like... Seems so strange to me. But they're like, you know, all, all, all this flux, you know, if we could just become radically stable and sort of like fixed in a tractor beam of, of like staring at God forever, that would be great. You know what I mean? Because you would never change. You'd just be locked in. And you'd never grow older or younger or do things. And I'm thinking, boy, that sounds, I mean, I love God. And I, I would love to stare at God and like, you know, see Him in His glory. But... I mean, I want to do stuff too, don't you? You know, I want to talk to people and, I don't know, go swimming. <laughs> you know? And, and, so, and so God made us a certain way that we enjoy the passage of time. We enjoy doing things. And uh, so, so this was one of the main things driving this, this uh, 
anti-kingdom of God stuff. But Psalm 2 is very helpful because it shows us the destiny of the Messiah. What is Jesus supposed to do with His life? Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is God speaking. God says, I've installed my king. We install like a light bulb or something. He installed his king on his mountain. Where is his mountain? It's in Zion. Zion is a place on earth that you can visit today if you got an airplane ticket and flew there. It's another name for Jerusalem. Uh, I ask for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we're talking about Jesus here, right? You guys uh, tracking with me? Ask of me. So he says, he says to his son, ask of me and I will give you heaven as your inheritance. No, it's not what it says. The nations as your inheritance. What are the nations? Well, like America, Canada, Mexico, Australia. You know, those are the nations, right? He said, I'm going to give you that as your inheritance. That's a sweet inheritance. You know? Um, At the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. They shall shatter them like earthenware. Jesus is going to rule. He's going to, he's going to judge. I mean, it's going to, heads are going to roll. But it's going to be for the purpose of bringing about ultimate peace and justice. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. I just want to fly through a few scriptures with you to, to show you that this isn't just uh, one man's dream after he ate Mexican food or something. Uh, <laughs> You know, but this, this is a major theme in Scripture. I mean, it's in Daniel's dream, it's in Isaiah's prophecies, it's in Psalm 2. And now let's look at Matthew chapter 19, where we can look at what Jesus says about it. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to His 12 disciples. And uh, Peter asks him a question. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you, then what will there be for us? You know, I mean, Peter's like, What's, what, what do we get out of this here, Jesus? You know, we left everything. I had a business. I was fishing. You know, I left it for you. And everybody else left their their occupations for you. Jesus says to them in verse 28, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he just just recruited his inner cabinet for the age to come. I mean, these, these, these guys are not just following some... Poverty-stricken rabbi around the Mediterranean world, you know, and getting, you know, sometimes mocked. Sometimes, you know, and then after Jesus left, they were like really persecuted, and they kept preaching. But they had a promise. Jesus said to them, "You guys are going to sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You guys are going to be the inner circle of this kingdom to come." And Verse 29, and everyone, oh, I think that's us, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So Psalm 2 teaches us that Jesus' destiny is to inherit the nations and the ends of the earth as his possession. We know from Daniel and from what we just read there that Jesus is the King, the Son of Man, King of that kingdom to come. And that He's not a solo act. 
he's willing to extend that to his disciples and say, look, you guys are going to rule with me. That's pretty cool, right? Because I, I think Jesus could probably do it on his own, right? But he says, no, you guys do it with me. Let's do it together. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul is befuddled at the Corinthian church because they're suing each other. They're taking each other to court rather than figuring things out among themselves. And it says in verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a cause against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Whoa! The saints will judge the world? He's like, don't you realize you guys are going to rule the world? What are you doing? Fighting, you're going to fight, you want to fight with each other? Fine. Do it, in, do it in-house. You know, find somebody, point them to figure out what the problem is and figure it out. Don't go to the outsiders and, and, and sue each other in court, Christian against Christian. He said, you guys are supposed to rule the world, and you're going to them for advice on how to live right now. You know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing? And he keeps going. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? I love 1 Corinthians 6. So if you have law court, and he goes on from there. Let's go to uh, 2 Timothy. I told you, we're cruising. We're, we're, we're move, making our way to the back. Making our way to the back. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think when I first read that scripture, and I read the Apostle Paul, and he said, do you not realize the saints are going to judge the world? My answer was, no, I didn't know that. What are you talking about? Right? I thought we were going to go somewhere else and live happily ever after on a pink cloud, smoking a cigar, strumming a harp. But that's not what it says. That's not what the Bible-minded response and hope is. The Bible-minded hope is we are going to judge the world. We're going to participate in this thing that Jesus is going to establish. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. This is a poem. It starts in verse 11. It says, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's like poetry with a bite, huh? It's like, hey, it's going to be great, so long as you stay faithful. But look what it says. If we endure, if we, if we persevere, if we... If we follow Christ and we stick with it a lifetime, we will reign with Him. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Get a little more info on this. Revelation is the last book. Chapter 2 is one of these letters to these churches that uh, is at Thyatira. And we're going to start in verse 26 here. Revelation 2.26 says... He who overcomes, do you want to overcome? I want to overcome. He who keeps my deeds until the end. Are you going to do that? Let's do it. Let's keep his deeds until the end. Not just for the day or for the year, but let's keep his deeds until the end. Let's overcome and keep his deeds until the end. That's what I'm in it for. You know, let's do it. What do you get? It's like Peter. Jesus, what do we get if we, if we actually do all this stuff you're saying? Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking that question. He says, To him I will give authority over the nations. Whoa! And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
And as vessels of a potter are broken to pieces, as I also received authority from my Father. So Jesus says, look, in Psalm 2 it says, I'm going to receive authority over the nations, and I'm going to rule them with a rod of iron and, and participate in this grand restructuring of the world so that it glorifies God and it's in harmony. And I'm giving you an invitation to participate in that with me. You are going to rule over the nations. You are going to be able to be part of this age to come. And the thing about this hope is that it might not be as fancy and glitzy as the harp one, but it's realistic. You know what I mean? And when you read the Bible, it's like super realistic. The, the, the things that the Bible talks about are things that happened in history, that you can go to the places and visit them. And when it, like, you think about the different stories that tell us about, like, Abraham. Abraham's like our hero of faith, right? But he's got all kinds of issues, right? He's got all kinds of issues. And the Scripture doesn't shy away from saying, oh, and by the way, you know, he called his wife his sister so he wouldn't get in trouble, and then they took her away. And, you know, he didn't have faith, right? And then he kind of gets it back, right? And you could look at anybody in Scripture and, and, and see how true to life the Bible portrays them. And so when we come to the hope, when we come to the question of what about the end, we get this same sort of dirt-under-your-fingernails approach to what is really going to happen. And it's going to happen on earth, and there's going to be peace. And we could talk about all the different prophecies about it. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, first of all, this is God's dream. The kingdom of God is God's dream. It's not my dream. It's not your dream. Well, it should become our dream. But it's not originally our dream. It was God's idea. He's like, I'm going to make a world. I'm going to put people on it. And I'm going to enjoy life with them. And they're going to have kids. And they're just going to fill up the place. Right? And then it went wrong. And now he's like, I'm going to fix it back to the way it was. And so that's his dream, so it should be our dream. And it's our hope. And our hope is what pulls us through when tough times happen in our lives. It's like an anchor for the soul. And the clearer perspective we have on our hope, the better we'll be able to persevere when we're tempted to, to do something else. It's also gospel. It's, it's the message that we are to share with people. Jesus preached the kingdom as gospel. Let's, let's close in uh, uh, Matthew 24. We'll close in Matthew 24. I thought of this analogy. See what you think about it. It's like basketball, okay? Just imagine for me a basketball gym, and you have these, these, these two teams, and they're all dressed up in their athletic gear. They have the mesh shorts and the jersey and the, the $200 sneakers, and they're, they're going to play a serious game of basketball. They've got the floor that squeaks when they stop and they've got the hoops fiberglass hoops and and everything is ready to go and, they, and it's it's all like professional the basketball's regulation weights and it's it's got like the fresh grip on it you can almost palm it even if your hand's not big enough and i mean it's it's we're gonna have a real game here and and you're watching there and you're a spectator and what the teams do instead of uh dribbling the ball and shooting it through the hoop and stuff like that instead what they do is they get the ball and every time they get the ball they punt it, and they kick it as high as they can to hit the ceiling, because they think if they hit the ceiling, that's how you score a point. Imagine sitting there watching a basketball game like that. You'd be like, you guys are dressed for basketball. It says basketball game right on it. You're using a basketball. There are baskets, right? And you're kicking the ball, right? And I think that's, that's kind of like what the Christian church has done. It's like we, we're using the Bible. We read these scriptures. We read the book of Revelation, but we think the goal is to, to, to launch 
north, you know, upwards, rather than to sort of play the game here, right? And so, what I'm saying is, let's, what am I saying? Let's shoot the hoops. I don't know. Let's get in sync with what the scripture says. Let's close in Matthew 24. This is what Jesus says in 24:14. He says, this gospel of the kingdom... Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that he preached, the good news that God's going to fix this place. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We've got work to do. You know, and this is where we're called upon to participate in this. And you better believe it that if we don't live the lifestyle of the kingdom then when we go to share the words of the kingdom, people are not going to be interested. You know what I mean? We need to do both. We need to live it, and we, we need to speak it, and share it with others. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in this message and unpacking it a bit more, check out the Kingdom of God class that I have available in uh, previous episodes. Also, I wanted to let you know that I've recently spun off a new podcast altogether. Well, it's not really a new podcast, but... It's a podcast with just the classes on it. I realize that a lot of you tune in and your interest is in the classes. So if you wanted to catch up on classes, Restitutio classes, I actually have three of them on there so far. The Historical Jesus, Apologetics, and the Kingdom of God class. The way this podcast will work, it's just called Restitutio Classes if you want to search for it, is when I post classes on this main podcast, they'll appear on that other one as well. So if you're just interested in the classes or if if you want to just cruise through the classes and not get detoured into off script and sermons and other stuff that maybe you're not into right now, that'll be there for you. Also, I'm hoping to spin off an off script podcast as well as one just focused on interviews. So stay tuned for announcements about that. I just wanted to test it with the Classes podcast, and iTunes and Stitcher both have accepted it. So check that out and share it with your friends if you're interested in that. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.